Welcome to Front Row from 2LO Rebooted, where we share the stories of the people who make up design and engineering. I'm Bill Thompson, and in this edition, we take a look inside the Blue Room, listen in to the recent Women in Technology recruitment event, and try to fail better. We begin in one of the newly refurbished collaboration zones over in the broadcast centre in W12, and you'll hear quite a lot of collaborating going on around us, where I talked to Ali Shah. Ali's Head of Emerging Technology and Strategic Direction, and I asked him about one of his areas of responsibility, the Blue Room. The Blue Room is the BBC's Consumer Technology Showcase, and it's a space for all members of staff, whether you've just joined or you're the Director General, to come in, really get hands-on with the latest technology, and just be able to talk to some of the team to understand how it's impacting our audiences, how the developments in the wider society are impacting our audiences, and how the BBC might be affected by the changes that we're seeing in the technology landscape. So it's consumer tech, so you're, you're bringing things in that are either in the market or close to being in the market. That's right, so, so most of what you see there you can go and buy now or you'll be able to get your hands on within the next 12 to 18 months. It very much started as a consumer technology space and that's really the bread and butter of what the team does, they focus on the consumer landscape. But I think Bill you might agree that almost everything is a consumer technology now, so even the things we use in our day-to-day jobs at the BBC are often coming from the consumer space, so the importance of understanding what's going on in that area is only increasing but also the implications are getting wider so we, we care about lots of the impacts on broadcast as well and on what's going on in the digital space how, how audiences are going to be interfacing with the BBC but often it'll start with something very simple that we, we spot is going on in, our, in the lives of our audience members. It, it's certainly the case looking around it I mean obviously there are gadgets I like the gadgets those gadgets are fine but the context is not the consumer use of these technologies it is the impact for the BBC as a, as a journalistic organisation as a creative organisation it's about how you could use this in your own practice. Yeah, so, so I guess there's two, two aspects to it. One is, how do we empower our creative and journalistic staff base to really get the most out of what the BBC can offer from a technology perspective and, and really help us stay world-class and ahead of everyone else? Because that's our responsibility, to be able to do the best journalism, the best programming. We need to be positioned in a way that allows us to reach our audiences in the best way and uh, I think everyone will agree lots of the changes that we've seen have been technology driven changes over the last decade and so really having a handle on how technology is changing and impacting becomes important. The other side of it is our audiences lives are also being impacted by technology so if we want to understand our audiences we really have to understand how they are interacting and engaging with technology so as social media has grown up over the last decade that's been one of the things that we've been tracking along and really working with other colleagues in M&A, in R&D, in wider parts of the BBC to understand, well, what does it actually mean? How might journalism, how might other programming teams really learn from the sorts of trends that we see going on all around us? And how do you decide which things to bring into the Blue Room and, and also when to retire things? It's more art than science sometimes, but I think the, the science aspects of it are really looking at those partners that we have and those journalists and those people in the industry are good, respected commentators. You know, you very quickly realise who by and large gets it right and who doesn't and so just keeping an eye on those developments understanding what's going on attending some of the trade fairs and shows that are going on and then trying to separate the hype from the reality so trying to develop an approach that where we can do that in a good consistent way the art comes into this which is you have to be receptive to that wild card that thing you haven't quite expected that thing that you've been looking at for the last couple of years but there's been a small subtle change maybe how do you stay open and receptive to what that change might mean so constantly reflecting on 
the developments that we're seeing around us and how they might impact us and our audiences. And in terms of re retirement, I think, let's take the example of 3D TV, for example. You know, at the time, there was a huge amount of hype leading up to the sort of peak of 3D TV. Lots of our competitors were actually launching channels and doing other things, and the, and the BBC was being a little bit more measured. And we were absolutely experimenting in that space. But we also recognised in our guts, for example, why there were some issues with this. And very quickly we realised, well, the story had moved on. And so in many ways we follow the same sort of patterns that journalism follows, which is judge when the story has moved on. And it might go in a different direction and you just follow it or the story stops. But the BBC has been good at this for a long time. And so we're not trying to invent a new method. We're just trying to tap into what the BBC does generally really well anyway. And then you're sharing that, those insights and that experience with the wider BBC. How do people find out about what you're up to? The main way is by coming into the room, booking onto a session with one of the team where you can come in and have a one-to-one -one chat or, or within your own team come in and meet one of the Blue Roomers or we'll take the Blue Room onto the road and we'll come to you and so that's an option as well. And so it's trying to make it really easy for people to get hands-on. I think that's been the main way that we have provided the source of insight that we're there to provide. Alongside that, we're starting to really open up uh, the way we reach and approach people. So trying to do newsletters and other things. But we recognise, actually, one of the things we all suffer from in the BBC is information overload sometimes. And often what you just want is that moment to be able to have a chat with somebody. And so that's why it's really a, a person-based approach. But occasionally there are things that have come along that you think actually are so important we need to build some momentum about it so we'll do road shows we'll do whole seasons of events at the moment we're actually doing a season on intelligence and that's really starting to explore what artificial intelligence machine learning means for our audiences and, and the BBC and how is it going to develop and that's been a reflection that actually it, it is one of those topics that has so much hype around it it's really important that we all come together and try and separate the hype from the reality and the best way to do that is to do a whole season where we'll do a talk a month and so we, we try and adapt to the needs of the people who are, are engaging with us but if you were to say to me what's the single best way that we find works well it's just having a conversation and allowing people to get hands on with the technology because you have a team of people who are spending their time figuring out what's relevant and can put you in the right frame of mind to understand what this thing might matter to you in your role in the BBC. At the heart of every every conversation starts with this question is what does it matter how will this impact the, our audiences you know we really we sincerely believe we should put our audiences front and center and, and so we ask that question and then we look at the diversity in the BBC in, the, in what we do we're a a wide and complex organisation that does a huge amount and so then you have to recognise that there are different cultures and different uh, attributes to the BBC and people's jobs are massively varied but there's always a common thread in that so often it might be well how is this going to help me do my job how is this going to help me deliver better content for my audiences how might this help me help somebody else and so those few simple questions often help kick off a conversation with whoever walks through the door. And it seems to be one of the valuable things actually is, as you mentioned with 3D TV, is being in a position to decide this doesn't matter yet. It might matter in the future, but I don't need to worry about it. If we look at immersive experiences like virtual reality or augmented reality right now, hugely, hugely important for gaming, massively important for training and development and there's a huge amount of companies that will become very successful in developing experiences for that purpose but for the BBC there's a 
there's a deeper question and often what we're doing is working with our colleagues in R&D and others to say well actually how might this impact what we do how might we be able to do something today that we couldn't do yesterday through this but we might also conclude and, and one of the things that you know um, I'm really reflecting on right now is to what extent is virtual reality and augmented reality really important right now but at the same time recognizing well we can see where this is developing so if, it, if we think it's going to become important in two years time actually we probably have to start doing something now we have to prepare for it and so there's that dual aspect to what the team does one is making it relevant for today because a lot of what we do is about today we're also taking that slightly longer view you know just a couple of years out and if we think actually something's going to really make a difference for us making sure we work with the wider BBC to understand well how do we prepare for that change Ali mentioned the current program of talks and events looking at the idea of intelligence so I asked him what that term really means to him I think one of the issues that we have with artificial intelligence is that it's so ill-defined and there's so much hype around it. And the reason that we decided to call our season a season on intelligence is because we couldn't quite define what we meant. And what we decided to do was, well, ask the question, well, how do we fill in the gaps in our knowledge? And if we're going to go and talk to experts and people who know more about this than we do, well, why don't we share that with the wider organisation, with the wider BBC? So the reason we're doing a season on intelligence, and it's a, a talk a month with respected industry people coming in and helping us explore one aspect of that, is that not only do we as the Blue Room team learn and my group learns, but everyone in the audience learns a little bit. And in many ways, we're not really interested in the technology development on its own. That's one important aspect of it. It's the impact that we care about. And we want to understand what are the sorts of impact questions that we need to be asking ourselves just to understand what we should as the BBC do. And so the season has grown from starting by saying, well, how do you define AI? And we had thought leaders from Microsoft and uh, others coming in to help explain that. But we quickly moved on to asking some of the broader questions about, well, how might the BBC react to this? What might the impact be on our audiences? What are the sorts of broader questions that the BBC needs to be thinking about? And, and so hopefully at the end of the season, we all walk away with a better understanding of what we mean by intelligence. And what's coming next in this season? In July, we have a conference in W1. And throughout the day, we'll have some hands-on sessions for people to come along, any member of staff to come along and learn more about this with the Blue Room. But then towards the late afternoon and early evening, we'll start to have talks from key speakers coming in. So we're starting to develop a relationship with the Royal Society and the Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence, two key institutions in the UK who are really exploring the deeper questions around artificial intelligence and machine learning. And the leadership from both of those groups will be coming in to talk to us about what does artificial intelligence mean in a public service context? What does AI in service of the public mean? How might the BBC be involved in that conversation? What might the BBC's role be? And it's, I, think, I think it's such an important question because we're all being pulled along by the developments from the big technology giants and that's where all of the headlines are coming from and, and small startups in Silicon Valley. But alongside that, we're not necessarily having the conversation about the ethics and, and the policy debates and how uh, we reflect diversity in our development of AI, how we reflect bias in the data that AI feeds on. There's a whole bunch of questions that nobody else wants to ask. And it's normally those questions that the BBC zooms in on. You know, that's what we do in journalism. We ask the question nobody else wants to ask. And I think on artificial intelligence, this is one of those things. But our starting point in July, on July the 10th, is to say, who else is talking about that from a public service perspective in wider industry? And let's connect with them, let's get them in and we'll have a conversation. Ali Shah there. 
And you can find out more about the event on July the 10th on Gateway or by contacting your local Blue Room team. This is Front Row, part of 2LO Rebooted from Design and Engineering. I'm Bill Thompson, and now BBC Recruitment. As part of this ongoing programme of activities to support and encourage women working in technology, there was a talent recruitment event at Broadcasting House during the recent London Tech Week. And our roving reporter, Prue Stubbs, the YSTEM coordinator, was kind enough to go along and record the event. Uh, my name's Rebecca Salisbury. I'm interim director of BBC Platform. I'm very pleased to welcome you all uh, to this evening's Women in Tech event, where our main aim is to showcase the BBC's careers in technology. Most of us here represent our technology division, design and engineering, um, and we are inviting women and men to apply for terrific roles and opportunities here. Uh, so hopefully we'll give you a little bit of insight about the kinds of roles we do and the responsibility that we have on behalf of the BBC to put our products out online and on air. One of the speakers was Frances McNamara from iPlayer, who spoke about life in the iPlayer team. I'm the executive product manager of iPlayer, which means I run a team of product managers who look after um, different bits of iPlayer. So, so I want to talk a little bit about what it's actually like working at iPlayer. So first of all, we, we have uh, different priorities in different quarters of the year, and at the moment, the priorities that we have are quality of service, which basically means that if we want to be the future of BBC TV, which we do, we, we need to be as performant and um, as reliable as TV. So you don't see buffering on TV, you don't see any errors on TV. We need to get to that point. We do have very good quality of service, but we need to get it way, way higher. So. That's our first priority this quarter. Second is personalisation, which Murray has talked quite a lot about. We've been doing a lot of work on that. And um, third is content discovery. And what we mean by that is that at the moment, iPlayer is a service that's used by people usually when they know what they want to watch. So about 70% of our audience are people who are sort of coming, I want to watch EastEnders, I want to watch Strictly or Poldark, and, and they come in and they find that show and they watch it. But what we really want people to do is to come to iPlayer and not know what they want to watch, but think that they will find something good to watch when they get there. And so that's only about 30% of our audience at the moment, and we want to really want to grow that. So I also wanted to talk about um, some of the things that we do in the team to better understand our audience. So, so first of all, we have cross-disciplinary teams. So... Uh, Sarah talked about some of the different roles that we have, but we, we have all those people working together in small groups of people, so the UX person sitting next to the developer, sitting next to the project manager, and talking to each other about, about how they're going to deliver the objective that they've been asked to do. And we have various ways that we try to understand what our audience, uh, what our audience want. So, so firstly, analytics, but we do an awful lot of ana analytics. So our product managers are looking at, um, looking at stats all the time and looking to see how people use, use the service. So daily, they'll be looking at stats. We do a fair bit of audience research and, you know, sort of focus group type stuff. So I just came from a presentation. We were talking about, or met 30 people about how they use our mobile app and how that compares to different kinds of apps that they use and, and why they might download an app rather than using the website, that sort of thing. So that was, that was interesting this morning. So we do quite a lot of that. With the cross-disciplinary teams where the engineers working really closely with UX, I really want the engineers to be talking to the audience more than they do um, and sort of really get the creativity of everyone involved in it to, to solve the problem. 
We do user testing, so we put prototypes in front of people. We do a lot of MVTs and A-B testing. So we basically can't work out how our features perform without doing A-B testing because the you know, sort of spikes that we get that some other people have talked about with Strictly and things means that we, we can't tell. We change a feature and then there'll be a massive program and we can't tell whether the big spike was because of the feature we changed or because of the massive program. So we have to A-B test everything to, to tell what, what difference we've made. So I've, I've been at the BBC for quite a long time and so I was prepping this and thinking, you know, what, what's actually different about working at iPlayer from anywhere else? And I obviously now can't remember. But uh, so I asked around a few people and one of the guys in particular said, a lot of the things I just mentioned, he said, you do those. A lot of people talk about them. Um, a lot of places that you go, people will say they have cross-disciplinary teams. They say they do a lot of testing. They say they make the decisions based on data. But you guys really do. And one of the other things he said was that you, you think about people all the time, which is certainly what we try to do. Francis McNamara there. In Worst Word Home, the playwright Samuel Beckett wrote, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. It's a mantra dear to the heart of many of us, and that includes the team over in UX and D, user experience and design, who recently held a remarkably successful event in London and Salford called Failfest. We're going to talk to the teams about their favourite failures in a future show, but I caught up with Chief Design Officer Colin Burns to ask him why he thought a focus on failure was helpful. I think what we wanted to do was sort of turn everyone's head around in UX around about failure. I think that if you have to have a good idea, you need to have lots of ideas, and that therefore means that a lot of your ideas are essentially going to be wrong or failures. And so we, I think we tend to celebrate our successes and very rarely celebrate our failures. And this was one of our teams in a workshop came up with this idea, and it was very easy for me to, to sponsor it and make this happen. And I think we need to be doing this a lot more across the BBC, because failures are what make things much better. But I know you made the point about you need to fail reasonably early early in the process. Yes, that's right. There's different types of failure. I mean, that doesn't mean to say that there isn't still, you know, horrible, nasty failure that, that happens once you've launched something and have spent a lot of money on it. Um, I think the secret is to, to fail often and fail early um, and to get all of that failure, you know, at the beginning of any sort of creative or design cycle. And presumably a, a culture where people feel comfortable talking about the things they did that weren't right encourages more experimentation and encourages everyone else to feel open. Absolutely. I mean, for me, that's the only way that you can truly create a, a creative culture. If you don't have... And essentially, it's playfulness. I mean, play is how you learn through failure. Um, and if we, as creative leaders, can't create that type of environment, then we actually we, we limit the, the sort of possibilities for us as an organisation. And that special Failfest edition will be with you soon. And now, from the Blue Room, where we hear from Colin Warhurst about one of his favourite pieces of technology. So what we've got here is an ultra-high-definition screen. So ultra-high-definition is essentially four times as many pixels as high-definition. More pixels sounds great, right? Actually, research shows that the more pixels there are, the closer you need to be to the screen to discern any difference in those pixels. So one of the reasons why I'm not allowed in, into retail shops is because I get thrown out when I say this in front of the salespeople. Um, so actually more pixels on their own, UHD or 4K as it's always known as in the shops, isn't actually any good unless you sit very, very close to the screen. So the kids are the only ones getting it right. They sit close enough to the screen to get the detail from it. The grown-ups don't. So what's the point? Well, actually, we're waiting for another evolution to arrive. So, so far, the story's been SD to HD, which is great. HD to UHD, not so great unless you sit very close. 
we, as well as having more pixels now, we need better pixels. So the feature that's been pushed in the next evolution is something called HDR, High Dynamic Range. Because we're engineers, we can't put things in simple terms. So high dynamic range is a very fancy way of saying contrast, the difference between the brightest pixel in an image and the darkest pixel in an image. And that's what our eyes respond to the most and crucially is not distance dependent. So if you are in front of a UHD screen, that's transmitting an image in HDR, your eye will soak that up from wherever you are in the room and the picture will look gorgeous. So I can put some UHD HDR content up on this screen. Crucially at the moment, it's worth knowing that only the internet providers such as Amazon and Netflix are able to do UHD and HDR at the same time currently. Technically it's possible to do it over digital satellite but it's quite expensive and not many broadcasters are making the content to do that whereas the online players they've dived in with both feet and have put their flag in the ground to say we're doing UHD in HDR pay a little bit extra on your on your subscription and you can access those features so those early adopters people who spent a lot of money on their TV if they've got a HDR compatible model there aren't that many out there at the moment early 27 uh, well midway through 2017 but more and more will be hitting the market then you can get access to this content you might be forgiven for thinking I don't see the big deal this just looks like a normal image but that's kind of the point because our eyes are HDR if you like we spent years and decades and director of photography's job is to squeeze the high dynamic range of the real world into the standard dynamic range of cameras and TV sets that we've had for decades now we can film in high dynamic range it looks on the screen as high dynamic range and our eyes see it as high dynamic range and goes that looks normal but to get to normal it's been a lot of work and decades of work uh, and obviously if you creatively light it and stuff you can make it look a little bit more wow factorish but this image of this program we're seeing here chef's table uh, this is how the kitchen would look in real life uh, we've not had to make any compromises on the lighting or the display of that image so our eyes just soak it up as if we were actually there well that's all from this edition of front row on 2LA rebooted do get in touch if you know of any people or project you'd like us to cover successful or less so Thanks for listening.